0: Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be preaching from verses 6 and 7 today, but I want to back up to verse 3 so you can see the flow of Peter's thought here, and I'll I'll read through verse 9 as well. Listen as I read God's word. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. After having described the inheritance that you have in Christ, Peter goes on now to discuss the reality of suffering. To many, these two things just don't seem to go together. On the one hand, you have God who is all-powerful and who is good. And on the other hand, you have the children of God who suffer in this life. We can look at those two things and say, well, how can these two things actually exist together? In fact... From our perspective, we might think that a child of God can mean that everything will work out perfectly. I'll have no troubles. I'll have no suffering. Some even go as far to teach that in the Christian life that if you're a believer in Jesus, that you will have health and wealth and prosperity. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? Jesus himself suffered. And Jesus taught that those who follow him will also go through trials. And so here, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. This leads us to take an honest look at the reality of suffering in this life. It helps us to understand how God is with us in it and how Jesus purifies you through suffering. And in this passage, I want to work slowly once more because it is packed with meaning. Peter says seven things about suffering that I want to call your attention to. As we do that, it will be all aiming to this point, that as fire tests and purifies gold, so affliction tests and purifies your faith. So let's start off with a realization that suffering is normal. Suffering is normal. And right off the bat, you may say, "Um, what? (laughs) What are you talking about that suffering is normal? Well, let's look at what Peter says here. And this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Here I'm focusing on that, that concept. If need be, and the very fact that here are believers in Jesus Christ, the church of our Lord, who is indeed suffering, and suffering persecution, suffering though they had done no wrong. It anticipates the three purpose statements that are going to come in verse 7, but it also implies that you should not be surprised by suffering in this life. And I want to to really develop this idea and to take some of the other characteristics of suffering a, a little more briefly But the aspect of the fact that suffering happens in this life leads us to think, leads us to understand that suffering is normal and there's some reasons for that. One commentator says it's the logical result of conversion. Did you hear that? It's the logical result of conversion. When you come to Christ, there is a radical change that takes place. Jesus saves you out of the world. He saves you out of the world so that you would belong to him. And I've used this illustration before, but it is so good, I'll use it again, that Rosaria Butterfield talks about her own conversion in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She calls her conversion a train wreck. So think about a train that's traveling down the tracks, going in this direction 100 miles an hour. And her life was like that. If you read her book, she'll describe how uh, how she was an atheist, a lesbian, one who was planning how to promote her agenda and was traveling down that track without any brakes. But, God entered into her life, took hold of her, brought her to her knees, and she was converted. And when God did that, it wasn't like her life just got an HGTV makeover, as if they painted the outside of the train and put up some new wallpaper on the inside. While it' still continued down the tracks, 100 miles an hour in this direction. she describes it as a train wreck, because it's the logical conclusion of conversion that when God redeems you, that He redirects you, that wreck reorganized her life, as it does every believer. It's as if God took that train and spread it out over the ground and then put it on the track again so that it would go down the track in completely the other direction. It's the logical conclusion that when you are converted that things change. That all of the allegiances that you had, all of the ways in which you were following the gods of this world are destroyed and your allegiance to Jesus Christ reorients everything. And that changes the way you look at the world, the values that you have and the ways in which you go about living your life. Another commentator describes it as the wake that follows after salvation's boat. The wake that follows after salvation's boat. So uh, you might talk to Greg sometime about being in a, in a large Navy, Navy vessel. And as it's going through the water, what happens? You can see this on smaller boats, too. You could be in a canoe. And as you're paddling your canoe, it's displacing the water as it moves through. And there's a wave that happens and spreads out behind you. And in, a, in an aircraft carrier, it must be a really big wave. I'd love to see it someday. But think of it as that way. When you're converted, there's a logical conclusion. The change that takes place is like a wave that spreads out behind you. It's not just because of that reorienting of everything and your allegiance to Jesus Christ, but think as well as the spiritual implication of that new allegiance because it puts you at odds with the gods of this world. It puts you at odds with the gods of this world. That's why it's a logical conclusion that you would suffer the clash of worldview that happens. Once you were following after the gods of this world, but God has claimed you for himself. I like the way Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to these words. That's what we were like. Think of that train going 100 miles an hour down the track. But God, says Paul, who is rich in mercy because of his great love and with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Can you hear here that clash that takes place. You no longer belong to Satan. You belong to Christ. Your allegiance belongs to him. And because of that, there is enmity, to use the biblical language. There is hatred between the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that you once followed. There's enmity and hatred against Christ And the church. So in Paul's day, believers forsook the idols of their day, the false gods, the gods like the the temple to Diana, the other idols that you would find in Greece and in Rome. They also committed treason against the emperor because they denied that he was a god. Those following Christ denied all other gods, which then put them at odds with the world. That's not just the New Testament church. That's a church in every age. In every age, believers are at odds with this world and its false gods. So don't be surprised by the clash that inflames the world today. We renounce the false gods of our culture. We renounce the false gods of the independent, autonomous self. We renounce the doctrines of self-expression of sexual identity. We renounce unbridled and undefined freedom of lifestyle that redefines marriage and sexuality and property. We turn away from the idolatry of serving our own wealth and comfort, the idolatry of looking to the government to define and to control everything and on and on. You have a new king. And that's Jesus Christ. And that sets you at odds with the world. So do not be surprised at the clash of worldviews. There is something normal about it. In fact, as these worldviews rise in power and in the minds of the culture around you, you should not be surprised if your allegiance to Christ and God's word sets you apart from the world. And you shouldn't be surprised to face the opposition of those false gods. It is the logical conclusion of your conversion and your following after Christ. Jesus himself warned about this. If the world persecuted him, it will persecute you, his followers, as well. Now be careful with that. Note that Jesus and Peter aren't teaching you to seek out martyrdom. They're not telling you to go out and to make trouble for trouble's sake. Instead, uh, you might even uh, recognize that when a country is following after Christ and his word is shaping our culture, that there would be periods of blessed peace. We can rejoice in that. But as a country forsakes Christ and turns more and more to the false gods, then don't be surprised that you you go through various griefs. In fact, Peter is going to say that very specifically. First Peter four twelve he says, "Believed, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is is to try you." As though some strange thing happens to you. So suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. This gives you reason to rejoice. Surprised? This gives you reason to rejoice. You aren't going through something strange. You could say, oh, this, this is part of belonging to the Lord. It's not unheard of that believers would, would be deprived of their livelihood or would go through times of persecution or would suffer sickness or other things. In fact, you can take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign and that he is good and that he will be with you always. In this you rejoice. Second, suffering is brief. And on these next couple of points, I'll be a little briefer as well. Verse six describes your suffering as being for a little while. Here the children might understand this best. When you are young, when you are young, waiting for something seems like forever. Your parents have told you that next week there's something special that's going to happen, but it seems like next week will never come. It seems so far away. Well, that can be true for adults too, right? (laughs) Things that you eagerly anticipate seem like they'll never come. And maybe more to the point of this passage, when you're suffering, that suffering seems to go on and on forever. In the midst of difficulty, your horizon and your viewpoint narrows down and you get something of a tunnel vision. It's all shaped by the trouble and the difficulties that you're in. And it shrinks in on you in a way that is suffocating. But your suffering will not last forever. In fact, in comparison with forever, your suffering is teeny tiny. It is momentary when you look at it in the grand scheme of things. And this is really hard for us to understand because we are measured by time. We live in it, and so we view everything in, in in terms of what we experience and the time that it takes for us to experience. But eternity has no measure like that. When you compare this suffering now with eternity, it it, it fades in its in its level of weight. And Peter does have eternity in view as he talks about the plan of God from all eternity past and the coming of Christ at his second coming that will bring an end to time as we know it. And then our suffering will be seen in light of that eternity. And this gives reason to rejoice. Your waiting will come to an end. It will. Christ will come again. Then the sufferings of this life will be wiped away forever. They will seem light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has in store for you. And God's promises help you to understand while you are in the midst of it that your waiting will end, your suffering will end. And so you can say, in this I will rejoice. Third, your suffering is varied. Peter says you are grieved by various trials. And here it's good to remember those to whom Peter wrote. It was a specific people. They were scattered by persecution. And Just think about the trials that they went through. Much like the persecuted church today, the New Testament church had to run for their lives. There were soldiers that were imprisoning them. There were people who were hunting them. There were juries that were set up to examine them and to torture them and to put them to death for blasphemy against God. Religious juries, that were seeking them out. It's good for us to recognize that that was one type of suffering, but Peter's words admit that there are various trials. And I think this is important. It's helpful for us to be reminded that there is a persecution. There is a persecuted church, and that there's uh, that there's a weight that that brings. And sometimes when we hear about that, we can say, well, uh, I don't go through anything like they go through. We enjoy a, a, a huge amount of freedoms and a huge amount of, of comfort in our life today. Who am I to talk about suffering? But there are a variety of sufferings. Sickness disease, things that happen because we live in a fallen world. Just because you are a Christian, you are not immune to those things. And you may go through those at various times. There are other things. Broken relationship, poverty, neglect, loneliness, things that have to do with the interactions of individuals, and how again, living in a sinful world, and consequences of our own sins can bring these things upon us. And then there are others, uh, other suffering where, where there's abuse of power, justice that's denied, or justice that's delayed, being overworked or overlooked, and on and on. The point Peter will make is that your relationship to Christ. Does not defined by your circumstances. And this is reason to rejoice, isn't it? It seems as if we are tuned to measure our relationship with God by how prosperous we are or how well things are going. That means that when we go into affliction, we begin to think, uh, God must have forsaken me. Or maybe I have offended him in some way. But Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice by these various trials. Here again, we scratch our heads, but we need to, by faith, accept this and embrace it. That what you are suffering is not a measure of your relationship with Christ. Christ. Do you hear that? What you're suffering is not a measure of your relationship to Christ. He has promised to be there with you. And he doesn't turn away a child in need. So in that fiery need, find comfort in Christ's presence with you. Fourthly, suffering is grievous. The fact that you are a Christian doesn't mean that you will never grieve. You are grieved by various trials. Peter and the rest of scripture doesn't teach some sort of Christian stoicism. In other words, it's not teaching you just to grit your teeth and bear it and get through it. Neither does the Bible teach you a Christian Pollyannaism. You know, what Pollyanna is somebody who who has no connection with reality and goes through life ignoring all of the things that are bad and uh, forcing a a, a smile on on her face. There are Christians that do that. They'll read James and say, count it all joy. And so so they go through grief and they, they force themselves to smile and say, count it all joy. No, Christians do indeed grieve. They may seem to clash, but this is a reason to rejoice. That you may honestly grieve. Isn't that refreshing? To know that you can be honest about things that are hard, things that are grievous. That you can go to God and express them honestly. You don't have to grit your teeth and bear through it. You don't need to paint a smile on your face. You can honestly give your grief to the Lord. Fifthly, suffering is purposeful as it proves that your faith is genuine. There are three of these purpose statements here in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here I'm calling attention to the word genuineness of your faith and the testing of that faith. And here Peter is calling attention to, uh, to the, an ancient way of testing gold. And gold is very valuable, so valuable that cheaters would try to trick you by giving you something that looked like gold but wasn't. And one way that the ancient world would test it was, be, was to put it into the fire. And if there was something that was genuinely fire, it would pass through the fire without being burned away. But false gold behaves differently and might even be burned away completely. But the real gold would remain. So how is it that suffering proves the genuineness of your faith? In the fire, gold remains. And under suffering, faith remains as well. It isn't burned away. Think of Pilgrim's Progress. Think of the many trials that Christian, faithful and hopeful, and his wife and family went through. A hill of difficulty a valley of the shadow of death, vanity fair, and so on. And even though they went through fiery trials, they persevered in faith. Now think of the many in that allegory that turned back along the path. The hill was too difficult. The lions were terrifying. The temptations of vanity were too tempting those who turned away under those trials proved false. But by God's grace, those who persevered found their faith tested and proved. Well, this gives reason for rejoicing too. Psalm 116 says, I still believed, although I said, how sorely I am tried. I still believed. It admits that there are trials and troubles that we go through. But it also finds that faith remains. And you can rejoice that though you suffer, that you are also counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Sixthly, suffering is purposeful as it refines your faith. And here the analogy of fire testing gold has another application. And Peter is going to elaborate on this in chapter four, so I'll just, uh, I'll be even briefer here. Think of how today that there is a process of smelting steel. They bring the elements, uh, that, of these metals that are joined together to 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. And, it, and they do that in order to clear out all of the impurities So that the joining of those metals will make something that is strong and pure. And the analogy here is that God may use trials to purify your faith. Suffering may humble you so that you depend more fully on Christ. It may take you to the end of your own self-reliance or your own self-righteousness to look more fully on God's mercy and grace. In this way, you can see that the fire of trial is God's doing. That's what's so amazing about the words of Psalm 66. God, you put heavy burdens on us. You caused us to pass through the fire and the flood. You made men to ride over us but you brought us through to a pleasant place. Now, trials are not an easy thing, but the Lord does use them so that there might be a growth in grace and a purification of our faith. And in this, you can rejoice. God is at work purifying you. You can trust God, believing that he is at work to burn out impurities, to strengthen your faith, to deepen your foundation in Jesus Christ. And finally, suffering is purposeful as it glorifies God. That your faith, when it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this could have in mind that Peter is talking about how the genuineness of your faith is, is found worthy, as if God is saying at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Here it might be talking about your faith is, even though it is a gift, is praiseworthy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or more likely it could be referring to how persevering brings praise, honor, and glory to God. Your faith under trial stands as a beacon of light saying, this is worthy of dying for. This is of ultimate importance in all of life, that Christ is my savior. And it doesn't matter what happens to me in this life. He is my savior, and there's nothing that man can do to take that away. And your faith is a beacon to that. That Christ is the most important thing in the world. Think here of how in Revelation, the elders in heaven come and they bow before the throne of Jesus Christ. And they cast their crowns at his feet. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. You see, in this you greatly rejoice. That your life is a living testimony to the greatness of God. And though it is tested by fire, it will indeed be to the praise, honor, and glory of God forever and ever. I pray that you would never tire of remembering your Savior and worshiping him. And in the midst of the trials that you sur- suffer, remember that God is with you and that he has a purpose in it. Let's pray. O oh God, you are God of all grace, and you have ordained that there are times that it is necessary for us to suffer. Oh God, we pray that we would not be surprised by this, but see it as a logical conclusion of following after you. May pray, O oh God, that our allegiance to you would not be shaken. Instead, may we count it all joy. May we rejoice in this, knowing that your name will be praised by our lives. We pray, O oh God, that you would test and prove and refine our faith, establishing it for, uh, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing together the last of Psalm 116. This is the portion that I referred to in my sermon. I still believed, although I said how sorely I am tried. If you are going through suffering today, I pray that you would meditate on these words and think of how God has delivered you, how he is testing your faith, how he is refining it. Let's stand and sing Psalm 116b.